All right. Fluent in good news. That's where we're headed today, everybody. And um, wherever you are, whatever campus you're on or what venue you're in, I got a really quick, easy quiz that we're going to start with, okay? It's just one question in the quiz. You're going to do great. Short answer, okay? Um, what do you call a long, narrow strip of cloth that you might wrap around your neck to keep you warm uh, on a particularly cold winter's day or that you might just wear as a fashion accessory if you're a European man or if you want people to think you're a European man. <laughs> what would you call that long, uh, narrow strip of cloth? A, a scarf, okay, a scarf. We call that a scarf. In English, we call that a scarf, at least. Um, in Spanish, you call that bufanda. That's a word I learned in eighth grade Spanish class, and I loved it from the first time I heard it. It's been my favorite word in Spanish forever, bufanda. I don't know. It made me feel like I was really speaking a foreign language, you know? Necesito una bufanda. You know, I just, there was something about that, like I need a scarf. Um, so I love that word. How many of you, uh, maybe you just this last semester in school that you just finished, or maybe right now on Duolingo are trying to learn a second or third or another language. How many of you are trying to do that right now? Okay, some of you are, and you know if you're trying to do that, um, that when you, when you need to speak, like if you go from just thinking about it to actually trying to speak that new language, when you do it, what you have to do, if you're like anybody else who's learning a language, is you think of the thought, I need a scarf. And then you have to think the thought, like first you have the realization, I need a scarf. And then you think in English, I need a scarf. And then you think in Spanish, what are the words, or whatever language you're learning, what are the words that mean I need a scarf? That's the way it works. You kind of go through that process. Now, there are some of you who are fluent in another language, okay? For some of you, English is your second language. You, you were fluent in another language, and now you're fluent in English, and maybe you got another one. I mean, there's people who are fluent in a whole bunch of languages. Maybe you are fluent in two or more. I'm only fluent in one in English, but this is the way it works for me in English, and I've heard when you become fluent in a second language or a third or a fourth, it works this way too, that you don't have to go through all of those steps. You think, you have, you have the realization, I need a scarf, and then the words in that language just come to mind. You don't have to think the English words first and then translate them. You just have the Spanish words coming to your mind or whatever language it is. That is what we call fluency. You have dream, I've heard, you have dreams and you dream in that language. You don't have to translate in it. You just, those, those words in that language come automatically to mind and automatically out of your mouth. That's fluency. So when we talk about being fluent in good news, that's the fluent part of it. We're talking about understanding the good news of Jesus in such a way that we don't have to stop and go, wait a second. What's true here? What's the good news about Jesus? But instead, we become the kind of people who have taken the good news of Jesus so deeply into our hearts, into our lives, into our minds, that when we look at the world, the good news comes to our mind. The good news is spoken into our hearts and it's spoken out of our mouths to ourselves and to others. That's what we mean by fluent when we say fluent in good news. It's a big aim, but God can do it in us. So that's what we want to look at as we look, as we walk through the book of Mark. That's the first part of that. Now set that aside. That's the idea of fluency. Set that aside for a second. Um, we got to talk about the second part of this series we call being fluent in good news. What do we mean by good news? What do we mean by that? I don't know if you ever went to summer camp. Summer's starting. Maybe some of you guys are going to go to camp this summer. Um, 
I went to summer camp all the time when I was growing up, and the first day of camp, you had to take a swimming test, okay? There was a system. When you went swimming, you were rated. You could have a red tag. Red means stop. You could have a yellow tag, okay? Um, you could have a green tag. Green means go, right? And the way it worked is you took a swimming test. If you, first step, swim all the way down the dock to the end and all the way back without stopping. If you couldn't do that, red tag. That means you gotta take swimming lessons during free time. And that doesn't sound very fun. Um, but if you can swim to the end of the dock and back, you get a yellow tag. That's decent, it's yellow, it's not everything, but it's good. If you wanna get a green tag, you had to pass the last test. And that test was get in the lake and tread water for 10 minutes. For 10 minutes straight, just can't touch anything, you gotta tread water for 10 minutes. If you pass that, you got a green tag. If you failed it, you, one, could not go out in a sailboat, Sorry, no sailboats for yellow tags or red tags. And horror of horrors, if you failed that test, you would have to wear a life jacket when you went out in a canoe. <laughs> Ten-year-olds don't want to wear the big orange life jacket. You want to sit on the life jacket like you're cool, you know? But if you didn't pass that test, if you couldn't tread water for 10 minutes, you had to wear the thing around your neck and look goofy while you're paddling the canoe. So everybody wanted to pass the tread water test 10 minutes. That's what you wanted to do. Now, it was not easy. 10 minutes passes very slowly when you're treading water. This camp's in northern Minnesota. You're there in June, July, it doesn't matter. It would seem like whenever you took swim test, it was like 60 degrees out, a drizzle starting, the water's freezing cold. So it's cold, you're shivering, you have to get in the cold lake, there's a big snapping turtles in this lake, um, and the minutes are just ticking by so slowly. And if you happen to be born with a birthmark on your stomach, like some of us were, the little perch, the little fish in the lake come and nibble on it while you're treading water, for real. So it's a serious test of will, you know? Now, imagine you're taking that test and just before you get in the water, someone comes up to you and says, guess what? You're gonna tread the water. You're gonna be in there for 10 minutes, but it doesn't matter whether you can do it right or not. It doesn't matter. Somebody else who's an amazing swimmer took the test beforehand and they passed the test. So it doesn't matter what you do, you're getting a green tag you're going out in the sailboat, brother. You know, like if somebody told you that. Now imagine how that would change the experience of treading water in the lake, of taking that test. Like for one, it would take the pressure off for sure. Like great, it doesn't matter how I do, the pressure's off. Okay, I don't have to be nervous about this. Butterflies out of my stomach, that's great. But also think about what it would do to, the, to your mind in the experience. You would probably wonder, why am I bothering to do this? Why, why am I putting my toes at risk or the snapping turtles? Why am I putting up with these fish chewing on me? Why am I doing all of this, the cold water, everything? It doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter if I can swim or not. I have a green tag waiting for me on the other side of this test. It would really change the experience for you. And I think that is, for many Christians, that is our understanding of life, of the Christian life. That we are treading water until someday we die and go to heaven. And we don't really know what is the purpose of what we're doing right now because it doesn't really matter. The, the outcome's decided and I'm going there someday. That takes the pressure off, that's good. But what does that mean for my life now? Does it just mean that I'm treading water until I die? That is not the way that we were meant to live. We were not meant to live like we're just, we're just killing time, hoping that maybe we don't get, make God too mad at us. We did something. We prayed a prayer, got him off our back, so he's not mad at us right now. But 
what do we do now to make sure he doesn't get mad at us again and we just wait until we go to heaven? That's not the way we're meant to live. And I believe that this misunderstanding that a lot of people have, you maybe wouldn't describe it that way, but that's your experience of the Christian life. I believe that misunderstanding comes from a misunderstanding of what the good news is, what the gospel is. That's what we're going to try and clarify today and in this series. What do we mean when we say the gospel? What do we mean when we say the good news? Gospel just means good news. Like, imagine, what comes to your mind when you hear the word gospel? The gospel, preaching the gospel, believing the gospel. When you hear that kind of language, what comes to, you, to your mind? For many people, that stirs up this idea. The gospel means what you need to know to be saved. That's the gospel. What do I need to know to be saved? And to be saved means to go to heaven when you die. So that's what the gospel means for many of us. Um, sometimes it means, okay, um, preaching the gospel. Okay, so that means an altar call. That means conversions. That means people crossing the line of faith. That's what gospel is or gospel preaching. Um, for others, the gospel means a theological truth like justification, just, justification by grace. Like justification um, by grace through faith alone. That's the gospel. Uh, for some people, it just simply means I'm lost, I'm a sinner, Jesus died so I don't have to, and if I agree with that, I can go to heaven when I die. Here's the thing. The good news, when we talk about gospel, when we talk about good news, the good news is not about passing a test so you can go to heaven when you die. And maybe that's um, disturbing to hear because you would go, no, that's... That is what it is. That's what I've always learned it to be. Let me say it again. The good news is not about passing a test so you can go to heaven when you die. Now listen, what I just said, those, those, those things we talked about, those things are true. We are, this is this is completely true. We are all lost sinners who deserve death. But Jesus did die. He paid a price that we couldn't pay so that if we believe and receive him, we will live forever with God after we die. That is completely true. But it's not the good news. It's not the whole good news. It's not the gospel. The gospel is actually bigger than that and better than that. It includes that, but that's only part of it. And you might say, okay, Tim, well, then it's not such a big deal. We at least agree that that's true. I'm good with God. You're good with God. We're going to be all right here. So why do I need to listen anymore? Listen, this is not just about semantics. This is not just about, well, I have a definition of the gospel that's a little bit different if you, you know. No, this matters, and here's why. One, if you believe the gospel is only that, only getting your ticket stamped for heaven, then you will end up feeling like you're either, either like you're treading water until you go to heaven someday, or like it doesn't matter how I live. It's this idea that, well, God's going to forgive me anyways. He's forgiven me already. I'm going to heaven when I die, so I can do whatever I want. Either way, it's not the way we were meant to live, so that's one problem. Another problem, it will leave you with an incomplete picture of what God is like. Like, if the, God, if the good news is God's really mad at you, but Jesus died, so he won't be mad at you anymore, so you can go to heaven again, then what that leaves you with is a picture of God, is that God is some being who is perfect, and he expects everyone to be perfect. And if you're not, he will kill you. Thankfully, Jesus came along and stopped him. 
That's not, that's not good news, and that's not who God is. It's not like he's this perfect being whose plan is to crush anyone who's not perfect unless somebody stops him from doing it. That's not who he is. We don't want to live with that picture in our mind. And also, an even bigger problem with this, this narrow view of the gospel is it's not the gospel that we read in Scripture. It's not what the Scripture teaches us. It's not what Jesus taught. And so we're going to look and we're going to see Jesus proclaiming Scripture proclaiming a bigger, better good news. And this is what we'll see today as we dig into Mark chapter 1, that the good news, the gospel, the good news is that in Jesus, the kingdom of God is here. That's the good news. You might go, I don't know if that sounds as good as the other thing. Don't worry, it includes that other thing, but it's bigger and better, and I want to help us start to see why. We're only going to start to see that now. Over the next nine weeks, we are going to dig into what is the good news of the kingdom, and we're going to understand it more and more. We're going to become fluent in it. But now, the good news is that in Jesus, the kingdom of God is here. So turn to Mark 1. Okay, uh, you'll need to have it in front of you. Mark 1, get there in your Bible, or if you've got a Mark journal, turn there on your phone, whatever. Get there, and as we're going there, just remember, one, um, if this still sounds a little controversial to you, that, like, uh, Bubar's upending the gospel or something like that, one, don't freak out. Um, we're going to take nine weeks to work on this, and uh, we're going to get to it. Two, um, don't tune out. Don't just go, this isn't a tomato, tomato, you know, it, it doesn't really matter. Uh, this is, we're talking about the things that matter most in life. Do you want your life to matter for something, or do you want to feel like you're treading water until you die? This should matter to you, so I hope you'll tune in. Sometimes we, we think like, oh, you know, this king and kingdom stuff, it's, it's language that's not very familiar to us. It's not the way we talk most of the time. Um, we don't think in terms of kingdoms very often. Probably the only, you know, if you think of a king and a kingdom, the only thing that comes to mind is the United Kingdom. Kingdom and King Charles and his family and all that drama. And what's the point of it anyways? It feels like a formality, doesn't it? Like he, he's not really running the country. I, I don't even understand it. Frankly, I don't understand the constitutional monarchy. I know that's what it is, but I don't know what it is. So he's not really running the country. So I don't know what he really does. It feels like a formality. Even the coronation. Did you watch the coronation? I woke up early on a Saturday morning or whatever morning it was. My son and I watched Five-year-old son and I watched half of the coronation. And the thing, one thing I remember is that Camilla, I think that's her name, who's now the Queen of England, was being crowned Queen of England. And she looked bored out of her mind. <laughs> Did you see it? She was like, they're literally putting a crown that's worth like a billion dollars on her head. And she looked bored. Nothing against Camilla. I just think... It's like, well, what does it matter anyways, you know? We're still living in the same castle we were living in before. Like, it's just a formality. We were talking about this this week in sermon meeting, and somebody said, yeah, that's the difference. We think of, of kings and kingdoms as being a formality, but it's a reality with Jesus. And we need to begin to think that way, not of this as formality, but as reality. That's why it's worth talking about. So Mark chapter 1, see how Mark begins this, um, his, this book that he wrote. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's the word gospel, just means good news. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. 
Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Okay, look at how Mark begins this. He says this is the beginning of the gospel. We think of gospel as a church word in the Roman Empire at this time for Greek speakers. That word was not a church word. It was a headline word. It was a news word. It was, it was a word that was used for a proclamation. The empire is putting out the word about something. They're putting out some good news about something. That's the word they would use, the word that we call gospel. Um, so that's all it means. It was just a proclamation, an announcement of something good. This is news that needs to be heard. Things are going to be different now. Mark says this is the beginning of the news. The things are going to be different now. I've got news for you. It's news about Jesus Christ. And, and he's, Jesus means Yahweh is salvation. Remember that? When we were in Exodus, we talked about this. I think just last week, Dave mentioned that. Jesus means Yahweh, the covenant God of the Old Testament. Yahweh is salvation. So right at the very beginning, Mark is already saying, okay, here, this is who's on the scene. Yahweh is salvation. Jesus. Christ is not his last name. It means, the, it also means the Hebrew word that we say Messiah, but both of those words, Christ and Messiah, mean anointed one. The one who's anointed, to anoint, to have the oil poured on his head because he's the one who is chosen to step into the role that God has called him to. So it's Yahweh is salvation. He's the anointed one. He's the son of God. Dave talked about this last week, this idea that even in Exodus, the people of Israel were called the firstborn son of God. So there's this idea that Jesus is, this, is the one who is to represent God to the earth. He's the son of God. And then, uh, then Mark writes this prophecy, uh, uh, quotes this prophecy from the Old Testament, and it's actually from both Malachi and Isaiah. He only mentions Isaiah, but from Malachi and Isaiah. And what, what John is doing in, or what, sorry, what Mark is doing in this opening section is he's making something very clear. Mark is making it clear that Jesus is the king that the story was always pointing to. He's dropping in all these things from the, that, that somebody who understands the Old Testament would understand that this whole story that's been played out for thousands of years of human history from the very beginning of creation, this is the king who's the culmination of that, the king who the whole story was always pointing to. So he quotes the old, these Old Testament prophets. Both of those prophets, Malachi and Isaiah, they were speaking and writing hundreds of years before about a time when God's presence, which was gone from the people, the temple was destroyed, they went into exile, then in the time of Malachi, they were back from exile, but God's presence was gone from the land. They didn't know where he was. They felt like he had abandoned them. But they, these prophets were speaking of a time when God's presence would one day return and be among his people again. And Mark is saying, this is that time. This is the one. He's here. Um, then he takes it, so he speaks this prophecy of one who's going to come beforehand, preparing the way, and that's John. So he introduces us to John, the one who's preparing the way for God's presence to return. And he tells us what John is like. He tells us where John is. He's out in the desert at the Jordan River. He tells what's happening. All these people are going out to him. And he tells what he looks like and what he eats. He's dressed oddly, and he eats like a weirdo, um, locusts and wild honey. Those tell us some things about John. One, okay, all you... 
You don't have to know anything about the Bible or that place. He's unconventional, right? That's not what, he's not, he's not wearing what normal people wear. He's not eating what normal people eat. That's obvious. He's wearing itchy, scratchy camel's hair clothing with just a, just a leather belt around it. He's wearing simple clothing and he's eating food that anybody can get just by digging around outside. So he's, he's living this simple life out in the desert. He's, he's dressed like a poor man. He's living like a poor man, but it's more than that. This outfit that's described that he's wearing is the same outfit that the prophet Elijah is described as wearing in 1 Kings, um, 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 1, Elijah is described as wearing the same costume, basically. So for sure, somebody's reading this. Somebody's seeing John, and they're going, ooh, this is just like the prophet Elijah. And we know from the Old Testament prophets that Elijah is, is prophesied to come and be a forerunner of the Messiah, the king who is going to come. And so they're noticing maybe he's speaking of the one who is to come. And then what's really remarkable is to hear what John is preaching. Because John is a big deal. Dressed like a weirdo, but don't let that throw you off. He's a big deal. People are coming, it says, from all over the region of Judea and from Jerusalem, the capital, metropolitan, cosmopolitan city. Jerusalem was a big deal. And people are going out, and they're hoofing it 25, 26 miles on foot across the desert. through a, It's really a wasteland to get to the Jordan River where this crazy man is baptizing people in the water. They're coming out there because they believe something big is happening. People think maybe this guy is a prophet, a new prophet in Israel. Some of them think maybe he is the fulfillment of prophecy. Maybe he is Elijah who has returned, the greatest prophet. He's, re he's returned and come back. Maybe he's Elijah. Some of them are even thinking maybe he's the Messiah. Maybe he's the promised one. Maybe he's the, So everybody, like they're going out to see this guy. And what he tells them when they get there is, I'm not the guy. There's somebody coming after me who is so much bigger than me, so much better than me. I'm not even worthy to stoop down and tie his sandals, like the, untie his sandals, like the lowest task for a servant uh, to get down on their knees and untie the sandals. I'm not even worthy of that because he is something else altogether. It's like, um, it's like he's saying, I, I, you may think I'm a big deal, but the one who's coming after me is so much bigger. He's, he's even coming for a different purpose. I'm baptizing you with water. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What did they even think that meant? He's saying he's not just a better version of me. He's a whole different category. It's like John is saying, the king is coming. Now, he didn't say it in those words. His head would have, if he did, I imagine his head would have gotten chopped off a lot earlier than it ended up happening. So he's not saying the king is coming, but he's saying the king is coming. That was good news for the people there, and it's good news for us that this long-awaited king is coming. So Jesus is the king that the story was always pointing to. Now, let's continue. Pick it back up in verse 9. Then it says, Mark moves fast in his gospel, so he jumps on to the next thing. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, way up north, came down to the Jordan, was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came, when Jesus came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. 
The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, before we dig into all the significance of this part of the life of Jesus, let me just remind you, Last we just did the series on Exodus. Last week, Dave Grun was saying, boy, when we get to Mark next week, the, the connections with Exodus are so obvious. They just jump off the page. Let me help you see a couple of them here in the first few verses of the book. Um, one, do this. Look, look at your Bible, okay, or your phone, whatever. Look at verse two of Mark chapter one, okay? While you're looking at it, I'm going to read to you from Exodus, okay? You look at Mark, at Mark chapter 1, verse 2. I'm going to read to you from Exodus and just compare and contrast, okay? Uh, behold, see where it says, if you've got the ESV, see where it says behold in Mark 1, 2? Uh, this is, I'm reading from Exodus. Behold, I send you an angel. Same word, angel and messenger. They're the same word. So, behold, I send you an angel or messenger before you to guard you on the way. Do you see that when Mark is quoting Old Testament prophet here, he's quoting Malachi, he's also quoting Exodus. Malachi quoted Exodus. Mark quoted Malachi quoting Exodus. So from the very beginning of his gospel, Mark is drawing this connection that there's a new Exodus happening. It has, it, it's come. And then what happens to Jesus when he appears on the scene? What's the first thing he does? He passes through the water. Sound familiar from Exodus? He passes through the water, and when he comes out, what happens? He goes out into the wilderness. After he passes through the water, he goes out into the wilderness for 40 days, not years, but he goes out into the wilderness for 40 days where he is tested. Remember the Israelites pass through the water of the Red Sea. They go out into the wilderness, and they're tested for 40 years. The, the parallels are obvious that it's like, it's like Mark is, is screaming that a new Exodus is here that it's time for people to be truly led out of slavery in the deepest, in the, in the, most, um, the most profound way to be led out of slavery. A new exodus is here. And now when we read this and we see what happens with Jesus when he's baptized, when he goes out, his identity to us is, is obvious. We know who he is. We know what the story is. Um, his identity is revealed to us. It may have not been obvious to the people who were standing there, but as we read the story, his identity is clear. We know who John is pointing to, and we know this is the guy because Jesus' identity is revealed in his anointing and his testing. That's what happens here. He's anointed and he's tested. So the heavens, um, as, as Jesus, Jesus shows up there, he gets baptized by John. As he comes out of the water, it says the heavens, he sees the heavens torn open. Um, Heavens, the same word in Greek uh, for heavens also means is the same word for sky uh, or even like atmosphere. That's, that's the same word. So it's not like heaven where God is sitting far away is torn open, but instead the very sky is torn open and the spirit descends in the same way that a dove would descend. Not that the spirit is descending and looks like a dove, but it's descending the way a dove descends. You know how a dove descends? You look at a morning dove. You'll probably see, you probably saw one already this morning. You'll see one today. We got them all over the place. And when they land, they do kind of a little helicopter maneuver. They flutter down like this. They lean back and flutter down. They hover as they come down. Now, I don't know if we're meant to think this way, if we're meant to see this way, but the only other place in the Bible that it talks about the spirit hovering is in Genesis chapter one. I think it's verse three. It says at the very beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the spirit of God was hovering over the deep. 
the Spirit of God was hovering. So for me, this even just brings a reminder of that, that God's Spirit, this is where God is beginning something new in Jesus, like he did at the very beginning of creation. And so the Spirit comes down on him. It's, uh, it's this picture of being him being anointed by the Spirit. Jesus' identity is revealed as he's anointed. And then the voice of God comes. And don't have in your mind that it says a voice came from heaven, that somehow uh, in another, you know, on the other side of the galaxy, wherever heaven is, so far away, where God is enthroned in light, that his voice came booming from a billion miles away. This is my beloved son, son. You know, it's echoing over all of earth. No, it's like it came from the heavens being torn open, the sky being torn open. And it's like a voice came from right there that, he was pr- that God the Father was present on the scene. And he said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. With you, I'm well pleased. And so Jesus begins his public ministry in this moment. So he's anointed. It's like heaven and earth collide right there. The Father is there. The Son is there. The Spirit is there. And then the second thing, the next thing that happens after he's anointed is he's tested. It says the Holy Spirit drives him out into the wilderness. You don't have to go far from the Jordan River to be in the wilderness. And he goes out, the Holy Spirit drives him out, and he's tested against the strongest enemy, against Satan himself. It says he's surrounded by wild animals, and he emerges victorious, unscathed from his battle with the enemy. This is is what was to be normal for a king in ancient times, is for them to be anointed and then tested and then crowned. You know, King David, that was his story. He was anointed by the prophet Samuel. And then sometime later, he was tested in battle against Goliath. He came out victorious. And then sometime, quite a while after that, he was crowned as king of Israel. Jesus anointed, tested. And then it's going to be a while, but he's going to be crowned at the very end of Mark's gospel. It's not going to be the kind of coronation that anybody would expect for a king, but he's going to be crowned in the end. So Jesus' identity is, is revealed, and we see that God has come as the promised king. The Psalms are full of references to this idea of God as king, God himself as coming as king in Israel. So Jesus' identity he's, is being revealed. God is the one who has come to set everything right. That's good news. God showed up. Now let's finish our text for today, um, the last two verses, uh, Mark 1, 14 and 15 says this. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaimed. So just know where we are in the story. He, he shows up. He's baptized. He goes into the wilderness 40 days. He comes back out. So a bunch of time passes. John is arrested. Then Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So we had the word gospel at the very beginning to describe what this book is that Mark wrote. It's good news. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now Jesus shows up and the first words out of his mouth are about gospel. Mark says that what he was doing was proclaiming the gospel of God. Just It means the gospel about God. He's proclaiming the gospel about God. And here's the summary of his message. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's what Jesus was going around Galilee preaching. Jesus is giving us a summary of the good news. He's given us just like Mark's, and Jesus, he's compacted it down. Here's what the good news is. 
So it says he's proclaiming the gospel of God. Remember, gospel means good news. Um, it's the good news about God. It's language that was used in the Old Testament, in Isaiah. How lovely are on the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news. Same word here, bring good news. He says the time is fulfilled. So that's this reminder that Jesus is fulfilling the whole story of God. That for the people of Israel, for 400 years, it seemed like maybe the story was over. God was doing something. God was doing something. God was doing something. God was doing something. They kept messing it up, but God kept showing up. They kept messing it up. God kept showing up. And then for 400 years, it seemed like nothing was happening. Where is God? And now he, Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. God is doing something. It may have seemed like it's over, but the world has waited long enough. He says, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. And when you think about kingdom, don't think so much about a place. That's what we usually do. United Kingdom, British Isles, I know where that is. Don't think so much about a place. Think about, um, we, we, kingdom is a noun. There's another word that's a verb and a noun in English that captures this idea a little bit better, and that's this word, reign. Reign, not R-A-I-N, R-E-I-G-H-N, or however you spell it, reign. Um, that's what you should think of when you think of kingdom. The reign of God. The reign of God is here. The reigning of God, this activity of ruling and reigning is here. That's what the kingdom means, that the ruling and reigning of God is here. Not that heaven, you know, some, that, that that's God's kingdom and someday we'll go there. No, he's saying the reigning, the ruling of God is here right now. And you go, well, hasn't God been reigning all along? Well, yes, but also no. When a king reigns, if he's really reigning, his will is done. Now, there are human hearts, and I mean, think about human history. There are places and times all over and over again when God's will is not done, not because it can't be done. He could do it anytime he wants, but for whatever reason, he allows others to reign in their own little kingdoms. He allows us to reign in our own little kingdoms in our hearts. But when we live in God's kingdom, we're under his rule and his reign. And Jesus is saying that is at hand. It's here. What Jesus is doing is Jesus came to proclaim that God's reigning is here. God's reigning is here. And he's saying that is the good news, that the time is fulfilled, that this whole story is going somewhere, and God's kingdom is here. God's reigning is here. Now, what does that mean for us? Like, what does it mean that God's king, he says God's king, he didn't say it's here, he says it's at hand. That's not language we use very much. You don't drive down the road and go, Weigel's is at hand, you know? <laughs> you just turn on your blinker and go in. So it's a little bit formal, it's a little bit weird, but butlers use formal language, at least in my imagination. I don't know any butlers. Um, I imagine if I got an invitation to a uh, big fancy dinner at a big mansion, you know, that you'd pull up. You'd walk up to the door with your invitation in hand, and the door, big doors would open, and there's a butler, you know, like in a tuxedo with a white gloves on, maybe a towel over his eye, I don't know. And he meets you at the door, he says, good evening, he probably has an accent or something, and um, he leads you down this massive hallway, right? And you follow behind him all the way down. And then he gets to these big, this big opening and these big doors, and he turns to you and he says, the dining room is at hand. Now, if he said that, what would you do? You would walk into the dining room. 
He, he would say the dining room is hand. That means we've arrived at the dining room. It's here. So go on in. That's what Jesus is announcing here. He's saying the kingdom of God is at hand. It's arrived. It's here. It's available. You just got to step into it. That's what Jesus is saying that the good news is, that life in God's kingdom, life with him in his presence, heaven meets earth. God is present there. He's with you. He's in your life, living his life through you. That kind of life is available now. Life in God's kingdom is available. So step into it. That's the good news. Jesus' message, you'll notice, is not, you can go to heaven when you die. I'm going to take care of it. You can go to heaven when you die. That's not his message. Now, of course, Jesus is going to make sure you can go to heaven when you die. He is not going to let that go. If you're going to come and live in his kingdom and in his presence and be with him forever, then he's going to make sure that everything's taken care of. You can't do it, but he can do it, and he will. He's going to make a way so that you can be with him forever, even after you die, that even death won't be able to stop you from being with him. Of course he'll take care of that, but the full good news is that life with him, with him in you and you and him, is available right now. Life in God's kingdom is available, so step into it. That's the call to us. Life is available in God's kingdom now, so we should step into it. This is good news. How do you do that? How do you step into that kind of life? Thankfully, Jesus told them, and he's telling us, he says, repent and believe the good news. Repent. And listen, sometimes people think repent means name all your sins and tell God you're sorry for them. I mean, that might be part of it, but that's not what the word repent means. I mean, that's probably a good thing to do is go, well, God, where have I wronged you? I'm sorry for that. That's great. But that, he, says, he says repent. Repent means turn around and go the other way. Don't just walk past. The kingdom's right here. Step into it. Don't just walk past it. Don't miss it. That's what he's saying. He's, saying make sure, he's not saying make sure you know all the wrong stuff you've done. Instead, he's saying don't miss out. Quit going the way you're going and turn and enter. And so I would say to you, if you have never stepped into life with God, don't worry if you can't unravel what's all the stuff I've done wrong. What's all the, you, listen, he'll help you figure that out. He'll, bring, he'll help you sort that out. But the first thing you do is you step into it. You go, he says, repent and believe. Go, okay, Jesus, I believe you are the one the whole story was pointing to. I believe you are the king. I need that king in my life now. I want to live under your reign. I, you're going to have to teach me how to do it. I don't know how to do it. you got to teach me. But I want to step into it. Just step into the room. That's what he's saying to do. And you can do that today. You just, you just tell him, Jesus, I need you. I want to step into that life with you. And you, he's waiting and he's ready to receive us. Why? Because the kingdom of God is here. It's available. And so then we ask, you know, we wrestle with questions like, like all of is that what I've, have I stepped into God's kingdom? Have I, we talk all the time about being all in. Am I all in? Am I living that way or am I just waiting till I die? Do I live like this is just a formality of God is king and this is his kingdom and I live in his world, but you know, I'm just gonna do my thing? Or do we live like it's a reality? Do we live day in and day out? Okay, God, this is your kingdom. I am one of your subjects. You've adopted me into your family. I'm your child. What are we doing today, God? What do you want me to do? What are you opening my eyes to? Heaven has met earth. Your presence is here. Your spirit is in me. What are we going to do together? Do you live like it's not just a formality, but it's a reality? That's what we mean by a gospel-centered life. 
that Jesus saves us and he transforms us, transforms our hearts, transforms our minds, transforms the steps we take in our lives. Now, our goal is to be gospel-centered people, to have our lives centered around living that way in the truth of the gospel. Um, so we have a tool for doing that. We call it Live It Out. We talk about it every week. You, listen, you only get fluent in a foreign language if you practice. And you gotta practice when you're outside of class. You can't just practice Spanish in Spanish class or you will never become fluent in it. You gotta be practicing it everywhere you go, all the time, thinking about it. You gotta be using it even if you're not sure how it works. So we use Live It Out as a tool to get you to engage with the good news. We're gonna be reading Mark's gospel, so will you take, these, take you through that, um, through his gospel, through his good news, to help you take it into your lives, to help us take it into our lives and become fluent in it. So do that this week. Um, stick with us this summer as we walk through Mark and go, okay, what does it mean that his kingdom is here? What does his kingdom look like? What is Jesus like as a king? What is it like when he reigns? That's what Mark is gonna show us. So stick with us um, as we do that. And then what I want us to do before we're done today is um, Jesus gave us another way to practice the good news, to become fluent in it, and we call it communion. It's a way that he gave us to be reminded of what is true about who God is and what he's done, that the kingdom of God, life with him is available right now. He gave us communion as a reminder of that. So whatever venue or campus you're on, whatever room you're in, we're gonna celebrate that together in just a minute. So if you don't have a little communion cup, you can grab one. Uh, there's a table probably in the back of the room that you're in. Um, but before we do that, before we celebrate communion together, uh, I want us uh, to pray together and ask God to seal this in us. So let's do that. God, as we, um, as we celebrate communion and celebrate the life that you've made available to us in Jesus, in your kingdom, God, would you just remind us of what's true? Remind us of the good news. Remind us that it's more than just life when we die someday, but it's life with you in your presence today in this moment, God. Remind us of that truth and allow us to celebrate it as we celebrate communion together. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, communion, what we're gonna do, it is, as I said, a, it's, it's, it's teaching the good news. It's a picture of the good news as we do this. I know it's a crazy little cup. It's hard to peel it open. We'll figure it out together. But if you can, I don't know if I can peel that top part off. This is about good news, you guys. So, it, yeah, it can be a somber, serious thing, but it can also be a joyful thing to take that cup and remember what Jesus said on the night that he was betrayed. He was with his friends and they were eating a meal and he just took the bread that was on the table and he, he painted a picture for them. He said, this bread is my body which is broken for you. They had seen that Jesus is the good news. They had seen that Jesus is the king, the one who was almost always promised, the one the whole story was pointing to. They saw that, and then he said to them, this is what the king does. He lays down his life for his friends. So the good news is that my body is broken for you. So do this in remembrance of me. Take an eat. After they had eaten the meal, he took the cup, there was wine on the table, and so he grabbed that, but he didn't have to peel any foil off the top of it. But he took that and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Those guys knew the old covenant. They knew what had been said to Abraham, to Moses and the people out in the desert. They knew the Old Testament scriptures, and they knew nobody could get it right. 
And so Jesus said, this cup is a new covenant, a new way of dealing with God in my blood. Jesus was saying, I'm gonna lay down my life for you. I'm gonna pay the price that you can't so that you can live with me forever, yes, but even now in my kingdom, in my reign. That's what this cup means, a new covenant in my blood. Take it and drink it. God, we're grateful for the good news of your kingdom, that you came, that you're here, that life with you, in you, is available to us now. God, teach us what it means to understand that in every moment of our lives, to truly believe the good news in faith, that you are the one who saves us, that you're the one who's come for us, God. Teach us to live that way for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray.